Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Julie Smith, is a senior fellow and director of the Strategy and Statecraft Program at the Center for a New American Security. She recently left her post as a top national security advisor to Vice President Joe Biden, and she takes me inside some of the key events, decisions, and frustrations from her time in that senior policymaking role. Julie is a NATO and European policy expert who spent much of her formative years working in Europe and Germany in particular, and we have some fascinating digressions about NATO, the Balkans conflict, and the relevance of German foreign policy. So the episode you are about to hear begins at the end of a 20-minute long conversation that we have about NATO. Julie goes over a brief history of NATO, including some of the key debates and inflection points along the way. She explains why NATO expansion in the 1990s and 2000s so provoked Russia and describes what the future of the alliance may look like during the Trump era. To listen to that entire segment, though, you must become a premium subscriber, and you can do that by clicking on the support the show link on globaldispatchespodcast.com, or if you're listening in iTunes, there's a link in the description field of the iTunes app. This will take you to a platform where you can become a premium subscriber and unlock this and other bonus episodes, and that is just one of many rewards you will receive from becoming a premium subscriber to the podcast. So don't delay, become a premium subscriber, support the show, and unlock these great bonus episodes. And now here is Julie Smith. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, I'll tell you one thing. If the U.S. disengages uh, and decides not to stay committed to this alliance for one reason or another or pulls out or at least starts sending lower-level officials to major NATO summits, that, in my mind, would be the end to the alliance because it cannot be sustained, in my mind, without U.S. leadership. And the U.S. often drives um, some of the innovative policies going forward, not that other allies don't bring innovation, but I do believe that U.S. leadership is indispensable in, in how NATO functions and has been for quite some time. To listen to the rest of our conversation about NATO, where it's been and where it's going, please become a premium subscriber. Support the show. I so need your support. And I so thank you for your support. And now here is Julie Smith again, and we kick off discussing something called the GIUK gap, which is totally unfamiliar to me prior to this fun conversation. 
I just ran my second war game on the GIUK gap, which was a very hot topic during the Cold War, and everyone's forgotten what the GIUK gap actually is and why it matters. Not um, only and, have I not forgotten uh, it, I don't know what it is to begin with. So, so do tell. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so um, the GIUK gap is the space of water uh, that falls between Greenland, Iceland, and the United Kingdom. And it was very important to us during the Cold War because it was the way in which the Russian or, excuse me, the Soviet Navy could access the Atlantic. And we made sure with our European allies to monitor the GIUK gap and develop sensors that would know when Russian subs were traveling through that gap so we would know what they were up to and when they were leaving and departing. And it's much easier to track what they're doing in that little space of water there in the gap than it is to try and chase them down and figure out what they're doing in the wider Atlantic. So, and so are it was you, just, just geographically critical. speaking, are, are you talking about like the area like north of, of the Faroe Islands or the Denmark Strait or, or like that whole area? Like basically the between, whole area. Okay, between Greenland, Iceland, and the UK, that, that sort of straight line yes. there. Okay. Exactly, exactly. And so what's happened in recent years is all of our capabilities and our knowledge and know-how of the GIUK gap has atrophied because we've been focused on counterterrorism threats. NATO went into Afghanistan. NATO's been the Balkans. Um, NATO's done counterpiracy missions off the coast of Somalia. NATO's been involved in expeditionary operations in faraway places. And we haven't had to worry about the GIUK gap because the Russians weren't um, very active in the GIUK gap, and it was less important to us as a piece of water. Well, so what's happened in recent is years? Is there a GIUK gap Russia, gap? There is a GIUK gap um, that we have to fill. And um, the Russians are showing up and they've been very active in this space. We've seen a lot of activity. We've seen exercising. And now the alliance is faced with a new question, and that is, how does NATO deal with threats to its east? So ensure that the Russians don't dip into the Baltic states or do anything in the Baltic Sea. How does NATO also protect its member states from threats to the south? So whether that's ISIL in Syria or instability in Libya or anywhere else in North Africa or the Middle East. And then now the third part to that is what can NATO do to get back some of the capabilities and assets it once had and its understanding of the GIUK gap to ensure that the Russians aren't kind of reasserting themselves in this space in a way where we're at a disadvantage and we're losing track of them moving ships and subs and all the rest. And so what I just did at the Center for New American Security where I work with my colleagues is we ran a tabletop exercise over two days looking at the variety of threats we might face collectively as allies in the GIUK gap and we're hammering out our findings and our recommendations literally as we record this. So can, so can I ask like why like why does it matter if Russia can sneak some subs past Iceland? I mean like are we concerned that they're going to, you know, assert themselves in like the Caribbean? I mean what what's the big like what's what's the actual concern here? Well, it's tracking their activity in the Atlantic, either vis-a-vis -vis the United States and our allies. They're monitoring very closely um, undersea cables. Uh, let's not forget that aspect of it and the threats that we face in having those cables cut 
or hacked. Um, there are Russian ships moving from the gap down through up into the Mediterranean and towards the Middle East or North Africa um, that could run counter to U.S. interests or Western interests. And so we need to understand how the Russians are running ships and subs through those waters. We need to know what capabilities they have. In some cases, they could be building up defenses and placing assets as part of a wider A2 AD anti-access aerial denial uh, strategy that would weaken our ability to go after uh, the Russians should we get into some sort of conflict. So th again, this doesn't mean that we need to dedicate all of our resources and this is the hottest um, priority for the alliance, but it is a region that's seen a lot of increased activity and we need to understand what's happening and why Russian subs are sailing through the gap. Um, or traveling through the gap. So, and thank you. I, I was yeah. I was not aware sure. of, of this as a global security issue. So, thank you. I, I appreciate. Well, I don't know if it's global. It's very regional. Or regional, but, uh, yes. But it's an important one. It's an important one. Um, so, I'd love to learn a little bit more uh, about you and and where you're from and how you got into this line of work. So, where are you from? I am from a small town uh, in Michigan, uh, in the Detroit suburbs. Okay. Called Farmington. Farmington. So, uh, did your was your family involved in in sort of international affairs at all, or, or in politics? Not in the least. Um, my love affair with all things European started. I was a Francophile. I was learning French in middle school and high school, and I was a French exchange student in high school one summer. And after that, uh, during my undergrad, I studied at the Sorbonne um, in Paris. And to date myself, as I was studying in Paris at the Sorbonne, um, reunification happened uh, just over the border in Germany. And I thought to myself, France is lovely. This is all very interesting, but I've got to get over there uh, to where history is being made. This is an unbelievable moment in history. And I packed up my French degree and I moved to Germany and I learned German and um, where... stayed in Germany for a few years. So, and, so uh, I mean, that's fine. So, so you're, you're, you're actually the second person I've, I've interviewed for this podcast who had a similar story of being studying abroad in France, in France, 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 and then just like wanted to get where the action is. Um, it's it. Oh, you're no, kidding. no, no. I'm trying to remember uh, who it is. I think it. I'll, I'll get back to you. Wow, I'm not alone. No, no, no. It was um a CFR guy. Uh, I huh. his name escapes me now. I'll 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 get back to you on this. And 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 listeners, if you're out there, I'll I'll do my research and and post the answer at the end of this episode. <laughs> um. So okay. So so that's really interesting. So so where in Germany did you head? I mean, like, and how did you insert yourself into the action? Well, so the first place I went was where I knew people, and I had met a number of Germans in Paris that were from Munich, and so I went to Munich first um, just to get a footing, um, and I enrolled in the University of Munich to learn German, and then I started teaching English, and as I was teaching English, you know, you, you sit down one-on-one -on -one with either young people business professionals, you know, business leaders or retirees. And it was like anthropology. I was getting these little snapshots of what reunification meant to all these different kind of demographics across Germany. And so that was kind of my introduction. Was there like a then story went, or like a, a, a theme that would recur that, that resonates with you to this day? 
Well, it was interesting because it started out as very euphoric of what a remarkable moment in our history and we're going to be reunified and how glorious this is going to be. And there were personal anecdotes of families being separated. And and it was all the, you know, I was able to witness in large part the honeymoon phase, but I stayed for two years. And over time, what you could see was then the skepticism and the concerns of what does this mean for me as a taxpayer and how hard will this be? And my goodness, we're all German, but are we? And, you know, there were just much deeper fundamental existential questions about reunification, but there were also economic questions about reunification. And I could see this transition over time from the initial phase of euphoria to this is still the right thing to be doing, but wow, is it going to be complicated and hard? Um, And so that that was kind of my first introduction. And then I came back and did a master's degree in international relations and returned to Germany this time as a Bosch fellow. And there I went to the capital, which again, to date myself was Bonn at the time. It had not been moved to Berlin yet and worked uh, in the German parliament on foreign policy, on the foreign policy committee, the equivalent of kind of SFRC. So what, um, what were the, the big and, issues like around what yeah. was this around the Balkan uh, time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this was late. Uh, well, it was mid nineties. It was 96, um, 97 and, uh, it was Balkans and it was enlargement, uh, and big questions in Germany about, uh, some skepticism about the value of enlargement, some enthusiasts, but it was split. And, um, that was just a fascinating, fascinating time. And I made some of my first trips to Central and Eastern Europe. I traveled to the Baltic states in 1996, uh, for the first time, Latvia and Lithuania. And that was just a, a remarkable trip given that moment in history. I mean, they were just in the early days of transitioning and it was, it was just fascinating, really, so, truly so, fascinating. So a couple of questions on, on, on that line, like what was the debate in Germany against enlargement at the time? Well, there was questions about, you know, we were back at the fundamental question that's always been on the table about enlargement, and that is, would these new members be security consumers or security providers? And there was some sense that we are absorbing countries that will take from the alliance but not necessarily give. And it also moves NATO's border closer to Russia, which uh, presents new dilemmas new challenges and new risks. And some in Europe, not just in Germany, but in other places were concerned. And there were, there was a big debate here in Washington too, very fiery debate about whether or not this was the right approach. Were we uh, assuming too much risk? Were these countries in fact truly ready to be members of the alliance? Would they ever come to anyone else's aid? Did they have any military assets that were deployable? Um, could they even be interoperable with other NATO allies. Um, But the fundamental question is, are they providing security or are they consuming security? So 25 years later, 25 years later, is there like a, a resolution? I think it depends on the country. And, you know, I'm I'm not prepared to go country by country, but I think you could. And I think you could say, oh, without a doubt, 
you are a security provider without question. And since um, it's a compliment, I will say um, a country like Poland has shown itself time and time again to be a security provider. It is deployed to Iraq. It was with us in many, many missions, uh, expeditionary missions, um, in ways that, frankly, some of the old members of the alliance have not been. Um, So Poland, I would say, absolutely security provider. Now, if we tick down the list, you know, I'm going to be honest, we, I don't think everyone in the alliance would say that same thing about every single member of the alliance. And there are still accusations made that some of these allies, I would say the majority of them are security providers, but there are occasionally folks that believe that we've got a couple consumers that, but let's be fair, we also have a couple members in Western Europe that frankly would fit that category mm-hmm. as well. So, well, you look at Ger- um, Germany it's itself, right, in, in the debate over Libya in, in two 2011, um, mm-hmm. you know, Germany uh, did not uh, support the NATO intervention, if I recall correctly, into uh, into Libya. That's and correct. Whereas, you know, half, you know, it basically kind of split NATO down 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 the middle. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. Germany was not one of those um, countries that that sent uh, air power to Libya. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a case where NATO, NATO, uh, Germany decided to stand down from that particular operation. Although I would note that Germany did participate despite a very heated debate nationally in, in, uh, its own country about its participation in the Kosovo mission and, uh, sent thousands of troops to Afghanistan, Afghanistan as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's so, a more complicated story. How long were you, uh, in Germany and in, in the, the Baltic states? Uh, so the, as a Bosch fellow, uh, that was another two years. So, uh, building off the two years I had done in the early nineties, then I came back, the fellowship came to an end and I was offered a job in Germany at one of the think tanks there, which is the SWP. Stiftung Wissenschaft und Politik and uh, worked there for another year after the fellowship came to an end uh, and then returned to Washington and then came back to Germany again in 2000 to be a fellow at the American Academy in Berlin when the so, capital so was So Germany was, was really your, your kind of intellectual and, and professional home for, for many years. Um, Indeed. Indeed. What, so what sort of work were you doing in, in the early 2000s? So at the American Academy in Berlin, that was a fellowship where I was invited to come over and do some research on red-green foreign policy. What was unusual about that time is you may remember a guy by the name of Joschka Fischer, who was a member of the Green Party, who was uh, appointed foreign minister uh, of Germany. And under his leadership as foreign minister, don't forget the pacifist roots of the Green Party, uh, it was at that point that Germany decided to uh, intervene in Kosovo with the NATO alliance. And so it was a really remarkable time to have a Green Party member uh, as foreign minister and have this be one of the first big expeditionary operations for the German government um, post-reunification. And um, it was fascinating. So I wrote and studied and interviewed every single person I could and did research on that while I was in Berlin. Were you there during uh, 9-11? I was not. At that point, I had come back. Um, so I was here in the United States working at the German Marshall Fund. Oh, okay. And and yeah. um, I, I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, obviously everyone had, like, had their own you know, you know, personal sort of 11th experience, but um, having studied sort of 
European foreign policy for so long. Like, what did 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 sort of the reaction of the Europeans after nine eleven and, and NATO's work after nine eleven sort of surprise you in any kind of fundamental way, or is it kind of what you would expect it to have happened? No, it was it was you know for a good NATO nerd like myself, um, it was it was remarkable in the sense that it was the first time in NATO's history. Let's not forget how far back it goes um, when NATO invoked Article Five. Um, because it was coming to our aid after that attack of September 11th and offering its assistance, whether it's, you know, sending AWACS or whatever it was that we needed. Um, I mean, of course, you would hope that that would be the reaction, but it was just fascinating to really test your assumptions about Article 5 at that moment. That's never what any of us ever expected. We, you know, certainly before my time, the creators of and founders of NATO would have expected that to happen perhaps during the Cold War, and it didn't. It happened on 9-11. And so it was, for, from a Europeanist perspective and somebody who had spent a lot of time, it was really moving. Um, and meant a lot. I, I I think it was uh, just a remarkable, mo- I mean, obviously it was a remarkable moment in history for so many reasons. But again, as somebody who studied European foreign policy and security policy, it was fascinating to see NATO reach that decision. And, and you know, in, in that uh, earlier interview, you know, you did make that, that point that, that the early debates around uh, NATO would always assume, as you said or just now, that, that Article 5 would be invoked and the U.S. would be drawn into war in, in Europe. Uh, it would sort of happen the, the other way around. Yeah, um, it was unbelievable. Yeah. So I, I guess it, it seems though that that um, when so when NATO was preparing uh, to join the U.S. in war in Afghanistan, were you at the German Marshall Fund at, at the time? Um, no, at that point, I guess I had tra- I was just transitioning over to the Center uh, for International uh, CSIS, mm-hmm. uh, Strategic and International Studies. So I guess what uh, at the time like prevented you or, or did you ever consider going into government? Because, you, you know, you had this like wealth of expertise at, at the time. I mean, was it just that it was a Republican administration and, and you like identified as a Democrat? Yeah, that's exactly right. By the time. So I miss my whole the Clinton years represent for me the whole part of my career, mostly while I was overseas um, in Europe, learning languages or working or on a fellowship. Um, and by the time I reached the point where I felt like I had something to give and I had some real substantive depth of knowledge and could call myself at least in some capacity an expert on something, it, it Bush had been elected. And um, I knew that, you know, not being a Republican, there certainly weren't ways for me to go in as a political appointee. I had looked at opportunities earlier when I had graduated with my MA in the 90s to go into government at that point, but there were um, some hiring freezes. It was just a very tough time to find opportunities to go into government. And so I went overseas instead. So it wasn't really until 2009 when Obama was elected that I had that opportunity then to go into government and finally so, serve so and use can we talk about that opportunity? expertise. Yeah. Yeah. So, so where, so, so Obama's uh, elected, how did you, um, sort of get, get, you know, your, your first job then in, in government? 
Well, uh, I had worked on the campaign, uh, like a lot of people, and um, I had signed up fairly early to support Barack Obama, even though many of the people I knew among Democrats were trending towards Hillary Clinton. Um, I decided to, I I went to a couple of events. I was encouraged to attend by some folks I knew, um, Susan Rice in particular, and um, found him to be very impressive and saw an opportunity to help and lend a hand wherever I could. And so I did that. um, And then I had worked with Michelle Flournoy at CSIS. And when Michelle was appointed the Undersecretary for Policy at the Pentagon very early in 09, I think she was there by the first week of February, she had called me and reached out to see if I would be willing to come and work in the Office of the Secretary of Defense to do Europe and NATO policy. And it was truly a dream come true because it was something I knew something about and it was working for somebody that I had a great deal of respect for. And it's rare that you get that mm-hmm. kind of double header, so to speak, you know, and, and where Florida, you, you know, she's, the, she, she, she was the first, highest ranking female ever in, in the Department yeah, of Defense, right? She, truly she reached the rank of, amazing. of yeah. uh, deputy. Um, so uh, in, in your, your time then at, at the state, at the Defense Department, what were kind of the big early issues you were working on? What were the big like controversies and, and debates that you were having in, in the administration? Oh, there were so many. But the first thing we had to do, which was very difficult because we didn't have the assistant secretaries either at state or the Defense Department yet. So we had a couple high ranking people at the undersecretary level. We had some deputy secretaries uh, and then we had the deputy assistant secretaries. But for some reason, I still don't know how this happened. The NATO alliance had agreed to host an big, like three-day NATO summit in late March, early April, and they decided to do it on the border of France and Germany um, in strasbourg Kale, so that half of the summit was in French territory, half of it was in German territory. It was one of the most complicated logistical pieces ever, just in terms of having heads of state cruising back and forth across a border. And they decided to do it three months into a new U.S. administration. So here you have a new administration coming in. Most of the people haven't been even nominated yet. If they have, they certainly haven't been confirmed. And the new administration three months in has to show up, put forward U.S. leadership, put forward new ideas, and run with a NATO summit with almost no time, you know, normally a year's worth of work can go into some of these big NATO summits. And so it was just overwhelming. So the first day I show up on the job, I mean, it was just all hands on deck. Let's all immediately engage on this and get our engine started. And the first trip that I took with the administration, I got on a plane and went to the summit um, as part of the delegation. And President Obama was there. And uh, oh, it was just, it was a three ring circus. And again, just logistically, it was extremely complicated. But substantively, it was complicated, too, because NATO was in the process of electing a new or appointing a new secretary general, a very delicate task that always has a lot of politics at play. And there were a lot of objections, particularly by our friends in Turkey, to the appointment of Rasmussen. Yeah. Uh, and literally that had to be settled at the summit where Obama was like the action officer negotiating this decision, you know, with the heads of state from other. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Um, and I'll well, never does that forget moment, kind of the, it's does crazy. that give you as as a high ranking, but not like top ranking official, more opportunity, more leeway to push your own kind of like ideas and agenda and, and get them 
uh, higher through the 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 you know higher up the agenda than they perhaps otherwise would be. Maybe, yeah. I mean, truth be told, Sandy Vershbaugh eventually came in as the assistant secretary, um, even though he missed the summit. But um, I mean, Sandy wasn't that far off from where a lot of us were on a lot of NATO European issues. I mean, I think we I learned a lot from him and we saw eye to eye on so many issues. So, yes, it, we had an unusual level of clout and control over that summit agenda simply because half of the government was missing. Um, but even once everybody settled into their seat, I think a lot of us felt like we were kind of one team. I didn't find that adding more bureaucrats to the mix diluted our agenda and our priorities. And then I guess one of the other big, the really big moments in my tenure at the Pentagon was this defense review that was done out of cycle in 2012. Normally, the Pentagon has the QDR, the Quadrennial Defense Review, um, every four years, hence the name. And because the United States was kind of at this inflection point where it's coming off, at least in theory, of its missions in Iraq and Afghanistan at the time, and the president was putting this emphasis on the Pacific, it conducted this review in 2012 that resulted in the United States pulling two brigades out of Europe. And that was um, just a very, very memorable and painful phase of my professional life because I stood in opposition to that decision, obviously lost. Um, but uh, it was very telling and I learned a lot in the process and also learned that I had clientitis because, of course, Europe always matters more than anything else when you're a good Europeanist. Um, but it was, it was uh, memorable um, because of how contentious some of those decisions were. And then the challenge of rolling that out to the allies and saying, we're not abandoning you, but we are going to change our posture in Europe. And it didn't go down particularly well in many places. So, Can I ask, I'm, I'm curious uh, about uh, the objections that you mentioned to, to Rasmussen. So you're referring to Anders Fogh Rasmussen, who is the yes. uh, former prime minister of, of Denmark for like yes. for a random set of, of, of circumstances, like right after the 08 elections. I spent like a week with him in Ethiopia. No, oh. uh, he seemed okay. like a, a fairly oh unobjectionable oh, guy, and you know, he seemed like a, a you know like a good politician, fairly unobjectionable. What was what was Turkey's beef with him? Um, there were a number of issues. I think it was how I, I don't know if it was so much personal as country related. Um, I guess I'd have to go the back through all crisis, the grievances. Was that it? But what stands out in my mind is the cartoon crisis. Yeah, That's what yeah, I was yeah. just going to mention. Yeah. yeah, and the way in which Denmark handled it. Um, mm. And so I think out of principle, um, the Turks felt like certainly NATO could find another candidate um, that wasn't coming from a country that had reacted in such a controversial way in terms of just. Saying, look, freedom of speech, um, and we're going to allow these cartoons to go forward and be published. Um, so and uh, yeah, so that's I think interesting because that in Ethiopia, yeah. in in Addis, he did like a joint like rollout of some project with Mo Ibrahim, uh, who's a, oh, a really Sudan yeah, who's like a, a Sudanese um, you know businessman. And, uh, the, the, like the, his handlers, the foreign, in the foreign ministry who I was talking with, like, breathes this, like, huge sigh of relief. Like, now that they have, like, Mo Ibrahim's endorsement, they could finally put the cartoon crisis behind them. It was, it was oh, fascinating. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, I can't believe that. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. It was, it was, it was fascinating. It was right after the, the, the 08 elections. It was, like, oh, two weeks after the, uh, the Obama election. So, how long were you in, in the, the Defense Department? Uh, about three the, and a half years. 
And what was your what was your move? Because I, I know you ended up in in the vice president's uh, office. How like how did that happen? Uh, I was getting ready to leave. I had had my first child in the Pentagon, um, which was manageable but difficult um, in terms of just uh, managing hours and and all the rest and ensuring I had time with my son and my husband. And so uh, close to the end of the first term, I announced that I was leaving the Pentagon. Uh, and that I envisioned myself going back out to the think tank world to do some research and have a little bit better work-life balance. And I got a call uh, from Tony Blinken, um, who at the time was the national security advisor to the vice president. And he said, we are looking for a new deputy national security advisor for the vice president. And I would like you to consider coming over for an interview. And um, it really just came out of nowhere. I did not know the deputy was leaving Brian McKeon at the time. Uh, I did not know that I was on any list over there. I had no, I knew Tony, but I, I uh, did not have any personal relationship. I had never really met um uh, Biden, the vice president in any uh, lengthy capacity. I may, may have come across him while he was serving in the Senate a few times, but um, it really uh, just made me almost fall over in my chair. And um, And it was a big dilemma because I knew what I was signing up for was probably longer hours at a time when I wanted um, fewer hours um, in the office and more hours with my son. And I was also thinking about having another child and um, it was tough. And so uh, anyways, uh, long story short, I ended up taking the job and um, getting the job, being offered the job and accepting. And it was fabulous. Um, so did you interview with Biden? Yes, or I did. did you have? Yes, I did. did. Did you get like a word in edgewise, or was it? Was he just kind of chatting? <laughs> I, 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 I've, I've been at briefings with with him. It, it's just, uh... Oh no, I did. I did. Okay. Uh, Tony was, was there. Brian was there. The four of us had a, a conversation. It was great. It was really great. So what? Like, what was that like? I mean, what was that conversation like? What was that interview like? Well, at first, um, uh, the vice president was uh, kind of deferring. I think he let Tony introduce me, and Tony talked about our background, and we had um, known each other um, through kind of the common network at CSIS, where I had been for about six years, and talked about my work in the Pentagon and um, outside and in Europe and all the rest, and and then. Biden talked a little bit about his agenda and what he had been taking on as kind of he was on point on a couple of issues and um, what that meant for the team and what they needed. And Brian talked about his current workload and how he was managing the job. And um, I asked a few questions. They asked me a few questions and, and that was it. Um, so it was uh, it was terrific. I mean, I, so I couldn't believe I was sitting there. Uh, were the questions they yeah, asked you like, poli like policy focused? Like, what do you think about this coming dilemma that's that's you know on the horizon? That sort of those sort of questions. Yeah, um, I think um, it's pretty clear that um, there were times throughout the administration when the vice president had a different view than the president, and I think um, Biden is interested in hiring people that understand his worldview, and not that you have to agree with him on everything, but I think he was curious, kind of how I had looked at. I had worked on Libya. Um, at the Pentagon because it involved NATO. Um, and we all know the story that both Gates and Biden uh, 
somewhat ironically because Gates portrays them as always being at odds with each other. But actually on Libya, they agreed that they did not think it was right for us to go into Libya. And so they were interested in my work in Libya and how I looked at it and kind of the the aftermath of that mission. And so, yeah, there, there were substantive questions. Um, it wasn't just, you know, tell me a little bit about you know, you're growing, how you grew up or where you grew up. It was, yeah. it was policy that's related. That's what this podcast yeah, was... is for. No, um, so that, that, that's fascinating. Um, so, so you, so the, I mean, you're at the nerve center then, right? You're, you're probably in all of like the, you're a deputy. So like the deputy, you know, the, yep. the deputy meetings alongside, yep. some you know, PCs, some mm-hmm. NSCs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so what, yeah. um, I, I guess like what, as a boss, like how was, what was your, like your, your kind of day-to-day interaction with, with Biden? I mean, were you expected to, to channel him or advise him or like a combination of the two? Um, I think, you know, whenever Tony was in a meeting or I was in a meeting and, and the vice president was not, uh, we did our best in advance to understand what his position was on any issue and speak up for him, particularly if he had strong views. So we knew there were certain issues where we would carry his worldview into the meeting. Mm-hmm. But like what would be a good know, example as, of that? As I hope. Well, obviously, anything tied to Afghanistan, he had specific views. We It's been well documented, um, some of his views on Afghanistan. He was not a big fan of the surge. Um, urge. I mean, the irony, of course, is where we've ended up is kind of where Biden thought we should be all along with a much more heavy emphasis on um, count, the counterterrorism aspect and less on kind of rebuilding an entire country. And so there were certain issues that he would serve, Biden served as point on Iraq for a long time. And so we knew when we went into meetings on Iraq and Afghanistan that we had like a mission set. But you know, and I think many of your listeners probably know, um, certainly anyone who's served in government knows, the world comes at you pretty fast. And you swing, sometimes I do four or five DCs in a day, and they'd swing from, you know, Egypt to Yemen to Syria to God knows what, North Korea. And there wasn't time every day to know what your boss wanted. There wasn't literally time for me to understand what Tony wanted um, in all of those meetings. I did my best, and I certainly tried to get somebody's ear or uh, to channel them in any meeting I was in. But the reality is that when you're representing your boss, any deputy that's representing their principal has a hard time keeping up. And this is the reality of government. And that's why principals get so frustrated or the national security advisor gets so frustrated when they sit down with principals and they think the deputies agreed on something, some course of action. And then all of a sudden they find that the principals don't line up with the deputies and then they, they pull their hair out. Well, that's just the reality of governing today. You know, things move so quickly that I really, you know, some days I felt like I was totally in sync and I knew what I was supposed to be saying. And I have to say other days, I just, you were guessing, you know, because it it was, you know, life was just coming, you know, the world was coming at you faster than you could keep up with it. It's just, it's truly overwhelming. Can can you maybe like walk Um, me through, um, like, what was a great day for you at the, uh, in, in the, as a deputy in the, in the deputy committees of the national security council meeting? Like, what can you like kind of take me through one decision that you, that you made that, um, maybe you're particularly like proud of, or just like went well that you, that you're excited about to kind of give listeners an idea into the kinds of debates and discussions that happen in these processes? 
Well, I mean, there were a number of decisions that we would take um, at this level to avoid decisions from going up to principles. But I'll, I guess I'm going to flip it and say what a bad day is. A bad day in the deputies committee is not taking any decision. And I'll be honest and say that a lot of the meetings we had on Syria looked like the meeting we had on Syria the week before. It was incredibly complex, intractable. I mean, there were no easy answers, no quick fixes, but I think all of us felt that we were attending week after week the same meeting on Syria, trying to figure out what it was that the United States could do. And this is in 2012 and 2013, before the red line, before all of that. Um, what we could do as a nation that would make a difference in the conflict on the ground and what kind of frustrated me to no end, and I don't blame anyone for this, I blame all of us, myself included, is kind of the lack of imagination in trying to make those meetings something more than kind of going through the motions week after week. And it was it was frustrating. Um, but uh, it, in contrast to that, there were just more meetings than I can count where we would take a decision and say, look, this is what we're going to do um, to help country X or assist country Y or take a decision um, to help this, this government in transition or provide resources or whatever. Whatever it would have been, I mean, there's just so many examples where decisions were pushed up and out. But I think Syria for me was one of the low points because it did feel like each week we were going kind of into that meeting with the same grim assessment of there wasn't much we could be doing at the time that would fundamentally shape the outcome of the conflict. And again, I don't want to give anyone the impression that there were easy answers, but it was probably the the least thrilling part of the job to see on my calendar another Syria meeting because this was something that we met on weekly and it it kind of um it would eat away at you because you wanted to come into that meeting every week with a fresh idea or a fresh insight and it just there wasn't any, you know, it just, so that really sticks with me. When I think of the hours we spend in the situation room, I think often of, of those meetings in particular. Um, so we're, we're just about out of time, but anything you want to plug going forward uh, that where we can follow your work? I know you're writing for, for the shadow government vertical now, which is great. Uh, anything yes, else? Anywhere I'm working else we can, with, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I mean, uh, shadow government's been a fun opportunity for uh, Derek Chalet, Colin Call, and I to be contributing yes. editors. We're working with about 30 different people to get some posts up there almost every day. Um, and then watch CNAS. We're going to be changing some of the elements of my program going forward. We're going to rebrand it in the next couple weeks. Uh, I've got some new adjuncts that I'm adding to my team. And so please visit CNAS's website um, in the next couple weeks, and I think you'll find some interesting new stuff going up um, and some new projects that we're launching. All right. Well, thank you, Julie. This was great. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Julie. And again, we are in the middle of our fundraising drive. If this show is something that you turn to week in, week out, I need you to support the show to become a premium subscriber. I am going to roll out lots more fun bonus episodes and other rewards and goodies to my premium subscribers who help make the show possible and sustain it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com. 
Uh, you can follow the links there and support the show. Thank you. Thank you. See you next time. Bye. Oh, and that person who was living in France during the fall of the Berlin Wall, whose name I couldn't remember, that was Thomas Fuller, New York Times reporter Thomas Fuller. Go check out that episode. It was, I think, episode 94. All right. See you next time. Bye. Bye.